Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Chinusa. Nick, what is going on, my man? Matt, it is Arbor Day, my dudes. Get out there, plant a tree, plant two, plant three. Um, It's Arbor Day. Thank your arborists. Burnsy Cat, thank you for your service. Yeah. Um, And definitely get out there and just beautify your neighborhood. Yeah. And you know what? If you are fortunate enough to live in a a home with a backyard, great time to go plant a native plant. It doesn't have to be a tree. It could be a shrub. It could be some wildflowers. But celebrate Arbor Day by growing something that would normally grow in your area if humans weren't around. Yes. That's a great, great way to put it. So we have a fun show for you today. What do you say we kick it off? Let's do it. Let's get right into it. Time for our quick hits for the week, and it's perfect for this Arbor Day. Wow. The first one is by Mark Heller of e News, who writes, Biden plans protections for old growth forests. Uh, so we'll peel back the curtain a little bit. Before we got into the story, Nick was like, Matt, I have something perfect to lead into the, the show with. And I thought his joke was going to be like, old growth forests. Biden is also old, <laughs> something like that. So I was I was very wrong on where he was heading with that one. Um, yeah, Arbor Day was the cold intro, the cold open, which is way better than what I thought it was going to be. Biden so, is old. Yeah, old growth forest. You know who else has been grown for a long time? Because he's old. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Over 110 million acres of forest owned by the U.S. government are now old enough to be potentially considered safeguards against climate change due to their ability to absorb and store carbon. The Biden administration hasn't announced specific plans for how to protect these forests yet, but has said it will seek public comment on how to manage national forests and grasslands for climate resilience. Officials also detailed separate plans for reforestation between now and 2030, identifying 2.3 million acres of public lands in need of planting after wildfires and other disturbances. An inventory of mature and old growth forests documented 32.7 million acres on lands managed by the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management. And 80.1 million acres of mature forests will be the subject of debate over how much the Forest Service should protect. Forest Service lands currently contain 24.4 million acres of old growth forests and 67.4 million acres of mature forests. The Forest Service noted that definitions of old growth have changed throughout the past few decades, and what's considered old growth versus mature forest in the new inventory is likely to change over time based on forest type and other factors. Earth Justice and other environmental groups called planned timber projects a violation of the Biden administration's inventory effort, although the Forest Service said the report isn't meant as a policy document. 
meaning the inventory is supposed to influence policy, so ongoing or future logging throws off how this policy will be created. Forests sequester about 12% of fossil fuel emissions produced by the U.S., so protecting them properly is a really important part of fighting climate change. Yeah, I mean, we talk all the time about how plants and trees and forests have so much carbon sequestration power. And I mean, this is this is another article pointing that out and putting that on display. And they're just really important to uh, fighting climate change. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's important for me, especially that, it, you know, we don't have a concrete plan yet. I don't know what the Biden administration is going to do specifically. But what I do know is that it's really promising to see that they're looking into this. They're seeking public comment. Mm-hmm. They're doing their due diligence. So some sort of protections will be coming. Yes. We don't know what they are yet, but like they're on the horizon, which is great to see. And especially for a president who just reannounced his reelection campaign on Tuesday of this week. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will be completely honest. I'm, I'm satisfied enough, I guess, with the job he has done thus far. He's done a lot of bipartisan things that, you know, I think were, were very much needed. When it comes to the environmental side of things, it's been really hit or miss. And we, we've covered him extensively on this show. You know, for a lot of the things he's done, we've seen more drilling in the Gulf of Mexico getting signed off on, yeah. which is a negative. But at the same time, We've seen the Inflation Reduction Act basically be the largest climate bill ever passed by the U.S. So what I want to see is more of this, because let's face it, we are going to have another election in, what, a year and a half? Yeah. November 2024. 2024. A lot of young voters are going to be really turned off by the idea of voting for somebody who who isn't going to be here in a decade, probably but could influence our futures by not taking climate change seriously enough. So he's spoken about it. He's done some good things about climate change. I want to see more and I want to see more of this. Yeah, I I completely agree with with everything you pretty much just said. I will say it's nice to just have an administration in office that is even looking at this issue. Yeah. Compared to what we've had, you know, and that's a very low floor. um, Yeah. But the, the bar is in hell, as people yes, say. Yes, the bar is in hell, exactly. <laughs> um, but it is nice, at least, that we're having these conversations and that we're holding him to a standard. Yeah. Uh, and if we do decide to elect whoever it may be on um, the Republican side, we would just have an unclimbable hill. Yeah, you know, we have, that would be four more years where meaningful climate action probably wouldn't happen. We don't have four more years to delay, so. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, let's move on to our next one from The Independent, where Vishwam Sankaran writes, Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket explosion rained debris down on pristine wildlife refuge. For anyone who didn't hear about the SpaceX rocket launch last week, it was an unmanned rocket that exploded basically right after it took flight. So good news first, no one was harmed. You know, that's when when I saw that the rocket blew up, I didn't realize it was an unmanned rocket. I wasn't really following this too extensively before it happened. Yeah. Um, I immediately thought of the Challenger explosion and, you know, Nick and I were too young to, to remember that it was before we were born, but everyone knows about that at this point. And that was the first thing that I thought of. Luckily, that was not what happened here. Unfortunately, even though it was unmanned and no people were, were harmed, this is going to have ramifications on the surrounding wildlife. So 
Musk and SpaceX hailed this as a massive success that gave the company useful new data for the next launch. I will throw out there, that can be true. This can give a lot of useful data, but it also exploded. So like, it can't be that massive of a success. <laughs> yeah. you know, I would say a massive success is it working, but yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean, you can just like look at the reaction of the control room to know that it was not a success. <laughs> like yeah. they, their reaction alone was enough to be like, oh wow. Okay. This is how they feel about it, what just happened. <laughs> um, I can't imagine it's good. Anyway. The failed launch left a cloud of smoke in the sky and caused cars and homes miles away to be covered in dust. SpaceX's launch facility was built in a nesting area for migratory birds, which a journalist from Austin named Christopher Hooks described as a one-of-a-kind preserve for migratory seabirds. Audubon, Texas, said this region is home to Texas's most pristine shorebird habitat. The American Bird Conservancy had previously warned many times that this testing location in Boca Chica, Texas, could harm endangered birds. There are also algal flats on top of the wetlands surrounding Boca Chica Beach, and those are an important food source for some of those shorebirds. The Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, said that there were over 75 mitigation measures that SpaceX had to comply with before the rocket could launch. These included limits to noise levels and hiring biologists to monitor the impact on local wildlife. SpaceX had met these requirements and the FAA then greenlit the launch. So everyone wanted this launch to succeed, but it's important to weigh the positives with potential negative impacts before choosing a site. And to me, it kind of seems like SpaceX probably just assumed success and felt that reaching those mitigation requirements was enough. You know, Sure, they they met all of those mitigation requirements, but I guess the the thing I'm trying to say is, did they meet those under all circumstances or did they meet the 75 if the rocket launch was to be successful? Yeah. And by successful, I mean not exploding and raining debris down below. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. You couldn't have picked like somewhere in like New Mexico or like, Something like that. I'm just thinking there's got to have been a better place where there's not as much wildlife. Shorebirds and like seabirds and all that stuff, like they play a big part in our in our ecosystem. I don't know. I drove through a lot of desert in New Mexico when I when I went out to California. I can't imagine there's not a place there or somewhere in the in the West that is not better fit or better suited to launch massive rockets out of. Yeah, no, I I. I share your sentiment. You know, it seems like this could have been a decent site, but it probably wasn't the best. I don't really know why they picked Boca Chica, but look, if it's that important to the migratory shorebirds, then look, even if you move it a little bit more inland, yeah, you know, there, there had to be somewhere else. So I do want to close this out by saying that there's also no guarantee that future tests are going to go better the American Bird Conservancy said that it's great that this launch didn't explode on the launch pad. But what I would throw out there is future launches could. Yeah. You know, they're going to be changing things. They're going to be trying to figure out why this exploded a few seconds after after it took off. Right. When they start to tweak things, you know, they didn't plan on exploding the first time. So who's to say that it's going to be corrected perfectly the second time and not just explode right at the launch pad and just devastate the local wildlife. So I am hopeful that SpaceX's next launch is more successful. 
there's no guarantee. And I hope that all mitigation measures are, are excelled past and not just met. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Agreed. All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we got two more quick hits to send you in the weekend. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, pollution, bird flu threaten very fragile Chilean dolphin population by Natalia Ramos and Sarah Moreland of Reuters. The Chilean dolphin is one of the world's smallest cetaceans and lives in the Pacific Ocean off the western coasts of Chile. The species is now threatened by bird flu, industrial activities, and growing levels of pollution in the water that it calls home. Industrial activities include seaweed extraction and sea farming and are taking place in the bays that these dolphins tend to live in. Chile is one of the world's top exporters of fish and aquatic crops thanks to its long coastline. Because of this reliance on the coast for so much of Chilean culture and economics, the wildlife that live there are often in contact with humans or industry. Veterinarian Cayetano Espinosa said there are only a few of these dolphins left, so they have to work even harder to ensure that they're protected. This article says that Jose Luis Brito of the Natural History Museum at the country's main maritime terminal in San Antonio said he receives constant reports of dolphins stranded on beaches, sometimes tangled in nets, and other times killed by pollution after consuming plastic or other waste. Some good news is that Chilean dolphins are considered near-threatened to the IUCN, who's the organization that puts out the red list of endangered species. So this means they are not as close to extinction as other threatened or endangered species. At the same time, they're not in the least concerned category. There are an estimated few thousand individuals left, but some researchers have suggested that that number is much lower. Yeah, when you look at Chile on a map... It's literally just like the most narrow country you've ever seen. And it's got like just all coastline. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the world's top exporters of fish and, and other stuff. It's the second largest um, producer of salmon. Really? In the entire, yeah, in the entire world, which is insane. So it, it lets you know how much they rely on on their oceans to provide for, you know, their families. Yeah, and and that's a really good point. And I think that this story is a really good summary of just the challenges for wildlife conservation in general. You know, we touched on what you just mentioned, 
how important this area is to the humans of Chile. The people that live there rely on this for their economy, for their livelihoods, for their lifestyle. So it's not like this is something where we're just out hunting the dolphins for sport, but yet they're being impacted by the fishing practices, mm-hmm. by the seaweed farming. You know, it's, it's those like unintended influences that really have, have kind of amplified as the population grows and as more people are doing more things. And that's why this era of time is called the Anthropocene. Anthro, people, meaning like every part of the world right now is impacted by humans and human development. This is an example of that. You know, we talked about plastic pollution floating out into the ocean. It's, it's not like it's just the people of Chile who are drinking water bottles and throwing it out into the ocean. No, it's us as like a global society yeah. over consuming plastics so that it gets into all of our ecosystems, including waters off the coast of Chile. Yeah, exactly. Every Everything that we put out into the oceans, you know, ends up in our food. That's something that you have to remember, like when, when we're polluting and yeah. and do, doing all of these things that are affecting our oceans. It, it all comes back to your doorstep. And, and I think something that's also kind of important when we talk about plastics and how it relates to the oceans is the whole like stop using plastic straws, you're killing turtles thing, like awesome sentiment. I get it. It's true. I feel like it's just been memed to death where people are like, mm-hmm. oh, killing turtles with my straw. Like, yeah, this is the other side of that where like, it's not just turtles. And even if it was just turtles, like, yeah, stop using straws if you don't have to use straws. But like it, when we talk about cutting down on single use plastics, a lot of people jump to like the straws, the silverware, stuff like that. That's easier to phase out, but it's, yeah. it's bottles, it's packaging, it's grocery bags. It's all of these things that if we stop producing them and I'm, I'm, specifically saying stop producing instead of stop consuming because it shouldn't be on us to make these decisions for corporations. Yeah. If they stop producing them, we will see the number of plastics in the oceans on top of Mount Everest out in these pristine grasslands go down because if we're not using as much plastic, there's less room for that to go wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, our last quick hit of the week is by Robin Shulman Agueros of the New York Times, who writes, How New Yorkers' food scraps get digested to provide gas for homes. So on a personal level, I am very excited about this story because I live in New York City. I compost. Kaylee and I drop our food scraps off on Sundays to the farmer's market outside of the Grand Bazaar. So shout out anyone who goes there as well. This is just something that I I take like personal stock in because it's going to impact my doorstep specifically. So last month, New York City Mayor Eric Adams launched an initiative to collect food scraps curbside starting in Queens, but this is actually expected to reach all boroughs by the end of next year. Officials hope that once it's expanded, the food scraps can be used for fertilizer and energy so that food scraps stay out of landfills. This is going to cut down on greenhouse gases and save costs of transporting food in garbage trucks. Doesn't sound like much, but the city produces 80 million pounds of residential food waste every single day. So in cutting down on that, you know, I'm sure there are people like, what do you mean transporting food in the garbage trucks? 80 million pounds weighing down those garbage trucks, making them less fuel efficient, making sure that 
you know, once those are electric, eventually they're getting less miles on their charge. So they have to charge more and use more electricity. Weight of transportation is huge. Yeah. And also just taking up space too. Yeah. Uh, One issue with this plan is that it's going to have to rely on local processing, which is something that the city doesn't really have in place yet. Right now, the food scraps in Queens are sent to two processing facilities where microorganisms break most of them down to produce biogas and fertilizer. One of the sites mixes the scraps with sewage and process it to create more gas than is needed to heat the plant. The excess has begun to be cleaned and refined for use by 2,500 homes served by the utility National Grid. And as the plant processes more food, they can provide heat for more homes. This isn't carbon-free since burning the gas still produces emissions, but it would reduce annual carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels by more than 90,000 metric tons. That's the equivalent of removing nearly 19,000 cars from the road, according to this article. Yeah, and this is an important step because even if we were to completely decarbonize our energy sector, we would still produce food waste. This allows for it to have another purpose than just being thrown in a landfill. Right now, around 5% of food scraps still end up in landfills, but about 95% is used for either gas or fertilizer. The goal is to reuse 100% of this by 2030. The Departments of Sanitation and Environmental Protection are both requesting proposals for processing the food waste the city is collecting. The Department of Sanitation will be coming up with a plan for this over the next year and a half. Many environmentalists are hoping that this will include more large-scale composting sites like the one that currently exists on the New York City borough of Staten Island. Los Angeles, Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco also have citywide measures for food recycling, composting, or turning food scraps into fertilizer. So this isn't a brand new idea, but it's one that New York City is calling its own. Yeah, and decomposing food does emit methane. So limiting this is definitely going to be a strong measure to mitigating climate change. Methane is extremely potent, and experts say that one of the best ways to fight climate change in the short term is to lower methane emissions. The city's independent budget office estimated last year that costs of food scrap collection would rise in the first three years because the city currently lacks the infrastructure to do this at a large scale. As the program expands, it would eventually save the city about $33 million a year. Which is super exciting. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that, like, it's genuinely an investment. You know, it's going to cost a little bit more, but then $33 million in savings every single year seems worth it. And my thoughts are New York City is going to make a big impact by doing this, but you know it's going to make a bigger impact? Every single city that is inspired by this and does something similar. And exactly. that goes for Los Angeles, Boston, Seattle, San Francisco, all of those cities that also have their own programs, like, Whatever is going to work for your city, pull together those resources that you're finding from those and do it. Yeah. We see this happen all the time on this show where a city will innovate in a really cool way or like implement a new practice or measure in order to mitigate climate change. And it's just so cool when like you see the steamroll effect and you get to see like, you know, for example, last year or sorry, this past year we had... um California's harsh um, come down on electric vehicles. Yep. And then you saw it, you know, over, you know, Europe and, and everywhere else too, and, and all over the U.S. as well. So like you just said, it's it's something that a big city like this innovates 
and then boom, everyone else is is following suit because it's just it's just sensible. It makes sense. It um, saves the city money, and boom, you get reelected. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, you know, sometimes all it takes is those first couple dominoes to fall. The rest of the world saying, "Hey, that's working really well over there. Let's see what we could do." Yeah. No. Exactly. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPC. We will be back on Monday for next month's mini-sode. And guess what? It's going to be May. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all of our music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people keep up with your tunes? You can keep up with me at plantatree.com slash arborday.com. And yeah, go check it out. Using his allotted time this week to (laughs) really make sure we get out there and plant some trees. Our (laughs) logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Peace.